0: No program is more interesting than a program with a major historian, and one of them is our guest tonight. John Furling uh, has specialized in the history of the Revolution and the years around the Revolution, before and after. He is the author of some seven or eight prior books, and now a master work titled Almost a Miracle, The American Victory in the War of Independence. It's a pleasure to have you here, sir. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. And uh, I want to begin with a famous quotation, uh, a quotation uh, that goes back to the winning of the Battle of Waterloo. And the Duke of Wellington famously said of that battle, when queried about how they won it, he said, it was a damn close-run thing. And what you are saying, what you teach us about the American Revolution, it was also a damn close run thing.
1: It really was. We could have lost. We absolutely could have lost, and, and no one uh, understood that uh, better than George Washington. And, in fact, I took the title of my book uh, from Washington's farewell address mm-hmm. to the Continental Army, uh, which he, he wrote in November of 1783, just at the end of the war. And, um, for the most part, he looked forward, but there was one little paragraph in that address in which he looked back at the war itself, and he said that the American victory was little short of a standing miracle. And I think Washington realized just how close we we had come, if not to losing the war, at least not to winning the war. Because war, particularly protracted wars,
0: are full of contingencies, if somebody had Played it a little bit differently. If uh, somebody had uh, been shot down in the prior battle, and wasn't that the battle that won the war? Everything could turn out differently. If uh, somebody had not sent his troops up a hill rather than down a hill, the whole war might have changed.
1: That's true, and and even if the weather had been different uh-huh. on occasions, you know, when when the Continental Army was trapped uh, on Long Island, in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, yeah. In in August of seventy six, they escaped because uh, either a nor'easter or or an early cold front blew in, and uh, in the rain and the fog, the British Navy was immobilized. Washington got his hands on every. Uh, uh, vessel he could possibly get, and he got the army across the East River and from Brooklyn and, uh, from to to Brooklyn Manhattan. over to Manhattan and and to uh, to safety, rather like the evacuation
0: of Dunkirk in World War II. It was. They saved the army. It was. Yeah. They saved the defeated army. Right. Right. To fight again.
1: Right. And and there were a number of close calls when uh, Washington got back to Manhattan uh he made the same mistake he had made uh on long island he divided his army he put uh, about a quarter mm-hmm. of the army down in new york city at the southern tip of manhattan and the other 75% up in harlem heights and so the British uh, commanding general William Howe did what any good general would have done. He landed in between the two halves of Washington's army, and if he had moved expeditiously, Manhattan's not that, that wide. His army could have cut off every every road across the island, and he could have trapped a quarter of the army. Uh, on the southern tip, but he didn't move quickly and the army got out just once one step ahead of the British
0: at the beginning of that sequence that is the British troops coming over from Staten Island across uh the narrows so to speak Mm -hmm. to land in brooklyn landing at gravesend bay as i told you just before the program that's where i was raised Uh on the shores of Gravesend Bay in Mm -hmm. the sector of brooklyn known as bensonhurst Mm -hmm. and uh, though i didn't know the full detail of that history till later on when i read something about the revolutionary war and the battles but i can visualize that because I, i used to fish off the rocks of Gravesend Bay.
1: <laughs> well, in fact, the uh, some of the uh, G- uh, Gowanus Creek and yeah. some of that area turned out to be a disastrous area for the American soldiers, because when the British did attack, uh, it was just a pell-mell retreat by the Americans back to the defenses, the redoubts at, at Brooklyn Heights, and many of the men had to uh, get, a, get through streams and across streams, and, and uh, they were just gunned down by the, uh, by the British. It, it wasn't Washington's finest hour. He he, uh, But he saved his army. He, he did save his army with, uh, with the help of the well, weather. Well, the general knows how to retreat. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Let's talk about
0: his army. The, the Continental Army has to be distinguished from the various militias who are also involved, but basically the composition of the American forces. What is not often credited, though it certainly emerges clearly in your book, is they you could almost look at the Revolutionary War as a civil war, in that Lots of Americans, lots of colonials, were on the British side.
1: Uh, absolutely, and in fact, uh, John Adams said after the war that that he thought about one third of the Americans supported the revolution, one third supported the British, and one third didn't give a damn. Well, historians, I, I think, now believe that among the people who were active in the Revolution. Probably about 80% supported the Revolution and 20% remained loyal to Britain. And mo- actually more than 20,000 colonists served with the British Army in what were what the British called provincial units. They, they were units uh, composed of American Loyalists usually led by British uh, officers. And uh, at, at one point in 1780, and I mean this is five or six years into the war. there actually are more Americans fighting with the British Army than were than were part of the Continental Army.
0: And some of them command most of them commanded by British general officers, but at least one major sector of the British Army uh, or of American loyalists under the British flag were commanded by a former uh, revolutionary general now a British general.
1: right B- uh, Benedict Arnold them, right Benedict yeah. yeah, after after Arnold turned coat. Uh, he he became an officer in the British Army, and he was sent to uh, Virginia and conducted raids in in Virginia in 1780. In fact, he came up the uh, the James River, sowed a, a good bit of uh, damage at plantations along the James River, and came all the way up into uh, Richmond and did damage there. Uh, Washington would would very much have liked to have gotten his hands on Arnold uh, at Yorktown, but Arnold had been recalled to New York during the summer, so Washington couldn't get him. So much depends upon events and
0: the presence uh, of men and of certain particular leaders and whether they play their role well or whether they, uh, they flub it. Uh, that one necessarily has to focus in on some crucial figures. Washington is the central crucial figure, but not the only significant American general. But you can play, as I always enjoy doing when talking with historians, the counterfactual game and ask, just imagine Washington is uh, killed in the French and Indian War, Mm because he did take a a major role in it under the British flag. If there's no Washington, uh, but uh, the revolution would probably have happened anyway. But would we... Have been doomed to defeat without Washington.
1: Well, that's the great imponderable. Or, or you could also say, if if Washington's uh, older stepbrother Lawrence Washington, mm-hmm. who was really his model, hadn't died of tuberculosis when he was about thirty years old, he might have been the commander in chief of the American army and not, not George, because he he had been a soldier in the uh, in the wars in the seventeen forties as well. I, I think the the imponderable is you never know how somebody's going to respond. To, to power. There's some people who uh, look to be well-trained, and they get in power, and uh, they don't perform very well. Mm-hmm. And there, there are other people like Harry Truman, for example, who was kind of a backbencher, almost a non-entity in the Senate, and, and becomes a great president. Or when it comes to generals, just go forward to the Civil War. No one would have predicted at the beginning
0: of the Civil War that Ulysses Grant would be the great victory. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. He had uh, a rather undistinguished career. Sure. He had left the army. And by uh, 1863, he's the general upon whom Lincoln is pinning most of his hopes.
1: Absolutely. And and I think in the Revolutionary War, Nathaniel Green mm-hmm. uh, turns out uh, something like that. I mean, Green had, had never soldiered before the Revolution. He joined a militia company a few weeks before... Uh, the first shot. And he's was a very fired. young man, isn't he? Uh, Pretty young, yeah. He's he's still in his thirties, I think, yeah. late thirties at the time of the uh, the revolution. Uh, so he has very very little experience. Uh, but uh, uh, he Washington, who who was an extraordinary judge of uh, of other men and and talents, and could make very very rapid judgments. Uh, of other men, I think saw something in green that that very few people saw.
0: Your judgment seems to be that Washington was much better at personnel
1: and at uh, sort of human management than he was at battle. Uh, I think that's true, and I, but I think you you have to to remember that Washington wasn't a professional soldier he, he and he hadn't attended a military academy, and in fact, if you if you add all of the years of Washington's adult life, he only spends about fifteen percent of that time as a soldier. He's basically a farmer, a businessman, a land. Well, isn't that spatula. true of all the American generals? Sure, sure, yeah. The, I mean, the, West Point the, had not yet been established. Right. They, 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 well, there were a couple who had been professional British soldiers, yeah. Horatio Gates and Charles Lee, mm-hmm. and they had resigned from the British Army and emigrated to uh, to Virginia. As a matter of fact, uh, and Richard Montgomery, who was killed at Quebec early in the war, but but the others—Knox and Greene and Sullivan and and the rest—were they were amateur soldiers. I mean, some some had soldiered, some as as had Washington in the French and Indian War. So that, so they did have some military experience, and they knew something about organizing an army, and and probably had learned a great deal about themselves coming under fire. Uh, in the in the French and Indian War,
0: of course, there were some very significant generals standing against the Revolutionary Army. That is the British generals. I've got a song. I want to play a snatch of it. This was the probably the first national anthem, if, on, if only unofficial. Uh, William Billings. Uh, who began publishing music and performing on the organ and so on around Boston in the years before the revolution and then provided some major tunes uh, for the Continental Army. And this one, Chester, involves, uh, contains an enumeration of all the British generals facing the Continental Army. Uh, and so here is a snatch of Chester by William Billings. The fade comes before they finish that enumeration. That second verse runs: Howe and Burgoyne and Clinton too, with Prescott and Cornwallis joined, together
1: plot our overthrow in one infernal league combined. Well, the the British were they were professional uh, officers and. Uh, it, they thought that if they could get Washington on the battlefield, they mm-hmm. could run circles around him, and they often did. But the problem was getting Washington to stand and fight.
0: Which was their best general in the field? Howe or Burgoyne or Clint, Clinton or Prescott
1: or Cornwallis? Well, um, I, they they each had different qualities. Mm-hmm. I think Clinton. Uh, I think saw the 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 big picture better than than any other British general. He was probably the best strategist uh, of of all of them. Uh, Cornwallis, I think, was probably the best fighter. He was more daring, more aggressive uh, than any. Howe, interestingly enough, is, is really, he's the key guy because he's, he becomes the commander of the British Army after Bunker Hill uh, in the fall of 75, and I think the the real time that the British could have won the war was since 75 or 76 or 77, and that's when Howe is in command. Well, we are overdue
0: for some commercials. When we come back, we should really look at the overall strategic history of the war. We'll focus on some particular battles, of course, as well. But what was the situation confronting the two armies as it began? And uh, what were the strategic orientations followed by? the two separate commands. We return directly to John Furling, drawing from his excellent and very important new book, Almost a Miracle, The American Victory in the War of Independence. That is, by the way, just published within the last month or two by Oxford University Press, directly back after these words. And we return to conversation with John Furling, one of the leading historians of the Revolutionary War, indeed one of the leading American historians, uh, whose uh, new book is titled almost a miracle the american victory in the war for independence and let's come to the what the what the military strategic types call the correlation of forces as the war begins uh, after the troubles uh, in boston and the british army uh, have already been there for a year or two and uh, lexington and concord really is the beginning of a shooting war ultimately the british are pushed out of boston they with- withdraw they sail away only to land then uh, down around New York and start that, all of those battles. But, as seen on each side, what was the view as to what the war would entail, what it would require, and how
1: one would go about winning it? Okay. Well, I think the when the British pulled out of Boston, their their, their strategy at that point was to take New York and, and use New York as the bridge, bridgehead for taking the Hudson River. If they, if they could gain control of the Hudson River, then New York and the four New England uh, colonies, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire would be separated from uh, all of the, the colonies below New York. There would be no way of getting supplies uh, uh, to them. So it was, it was somewhat like Lincoln's uh, policy of securing the Mississippi River, which would take three, three Confederate states and put them in the backwater. Of the of the war, so so that was the British strategy in in seventy six. And indeed, I th- I think if they had uh, um, been able to to secure the the Hudson River, they would have won the war. They would have crushed the rebellion at at that point.
0: On the other side, was there an intention to fight? A war with great battles or rather to essentially wage what in later years we came to call a guerrilla war?
1: No, I think from from the beginning Congress wanted to create an, an army that would fight a conventional uh, war and to, to some degree I, I think Congress wanted an army because uh, uh, they were afraid if they fought a partisan war or a guerrilla war uh it, it, they couldn't control the situation mm-hmm. and uh the uh, Congress, I think, was rather conservative. They weren't looking toward changes, and the Continental Army could probably uh, preserve things as 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 they were. They wanted a war just like the great old European wars. That's that's right, and and so and they chose Washington in part, I think, because he had served with the British during mm-hmm. the French and Indian War, and he understood how the uh, a, a European army was was structured. And Washington, uh, when he brought his army down to New York, to to defend New York. Um, he had had a year or so to prepare his army, and he he was convinced that uh, he, that the American soldiers were were adequately trained and they could stand up against uh, british professionals and it It really took only that engagement on on Long Island that we talked about earlier to disabuse Washington of that idea. and in fact, uh, within three or four days of of getting uh, safely off of of Long Island and back to Manhattan, Washington wrote a, a letter to Congress, and he spoke about changing tactics and uh, beginning to pursue what he called the War of Posts, or what many people at the time called a Fabian strategy. It was a term that, that was uh, taken from a, a Roman general who uh, faced with, with Carthaginians who, mm-hmm. who uh, uh, had numerical superiority, uh, he would, would run, he would pick the time when he would fight and pick the place that he would fight. And Washington didn't adhere to that strictly. I mean, he, 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 at times he did, but at times he did. Brandywine, for example, he did st- stand and fought uh, a pitched battle against the British. But his first
0: great victory is, a, if not absolutely a guerrilla undertaking, it's a stealthy undertaking. It's uh, the
1: attack on the Hessians at Trenton. At Trenton, it? right, and and it and really crossing of the Delaware, right, and I mean it was a perfect example of his Fabian strategy yeah. because he 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 launches a surprise attack on Christmas night of of seventy six, um, and it's it's not a, a battle waged against a large chunk of the British Army. There were only about uh, 1,500 Hessians uh, posted in a cantonment at, at, at Trenton. So it's a perfect example of that Fabian strategy by Washington. And it's, a, it's a really a crucial campaign, not, not just that attack, but I think what, what many people forget is that a couple of days later, Washington recrosses uh, the Delaware River, and he fights a second battle of Trenton and that battle, he, he really has his back to the Delaware River. I mean, no, with with no place to go, and he holds off the British. And then, under cover of of darkness, uh, he escapes and and goes up to Tr- uh, up to Princeton mm-hmm. and fights the third engagement in a period of about ten days. And it's really crucial because the the Continental Army showing mm-hmm. had been so poor in seventy six that who would want to join an army like that? I mean, the, the men were uh, ill-clad, ill-housed, ill-fed, and they were defeated in almost every battle. And now suddenly Washington had scored a great victory and it enabled him to recruit a new, new army for 77. And it also impressed uh, people and uh, leaders in Europe They saw Washington as a as a really daring, adventurous uh, general who was willing to take a gamble, and and um, uh, so that was a crucial aspect of his campaign
0: too. Over in France, they begin to take special interest because their perpetual enemy is getting. is running into some
1: real trouble? right. the the french had had, had sent a secret agent over in uh, he he arrives in Philadelphia just before Christmas in seventy five and holds very secret meetings with Congress. In fact, it was so secret that not even all members of Congress were aware that the meetings were going on. Mm-hmm. And out of that, the French began to provide uh, secret aid to the americans very clandestine but they were funneling some aid over through through 76 and even after trenton and princeton they they i I think the french were ready to come into the war at that point but they didn't want to come in unless spain would also come in and the spanish weren't ready to come into the war at that point so the french stayed out for another year and watched things very very closely again. And and once again, Washington pulls off a very daring strike against the British at Germantown outside of Philadelphia mm-hmm. in October of, of 1777. And though he doesn't succeed at Germantown, uh, it, it impressed the, the French American. John Adams was, was in Europe and he wrote back and he said that, that Washington was actually a better diplomat than any envoy that the Americans had sent over to Europe and it helped persuade the French to, to um, make an alliance with America and formally enter enter the war. I believe the next big victory coming up is Saratoga, isn't it? hmm And we'll go to Saratoga right after we
0: go first to the newsroom for an update on what's been happening. And we return uh, directly to John Furling. We're drawing from his magisterial new book. That word uh, is um, properly used only for books like this. It's, it's a large book. It's utterly readable, and it's full of rich detail, but it maintains the overall picture, and the narrative has a great urgency about it. It's splendid reading, in fact. Almost a Miracle, the American Victory in the War of Independence, by John Furling. It is just published by Oxford University Press. Well, we come to the most dashing of all the British generals. He's one of the five or six mentioned in that song we played earlier, namely, Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne. Who gets his comeuppance at Saratoga, doesn't he?
1: Right. He Burgoyne really, I think, had the rug pulled from from beneath him because the the plan in 1777 that that um, London en- envisaged. Uh, Lord Lord George Germain was the American secretary. Uh, Secretary for Colonial Affairs, mm-hmm. which meant he was the closest thing to to something like a Secretary of Defense in the in the British Ministry. And what uh, what Germain um, uh, wanted for a strategy in '77 was for Burgoyne to lead an army out of Canada into northern New York, and General Howe to bring his army. With the British with the Royal Navy up the Hudson, and they would meet in in uh, Albany, and I think had they done that, they might very well have won the the war. But at the last minute, um, Howe decided to to take his army from New York to Philadelphia. He thought that um, uh, that if he could could conquer Philadelphia it had been the home of the Continental Congress, it would have a psycho. it would be a psychological blow to the Americans. But I I think also he thought there were a great many loyalists in Pennsylvania, and there were, and he could use them. And he thought that uh, he was having a difficult time, as we said earlier, getting Washington to stand and fight. And he thought that Washington would have to stand and fight in defense of of Philadelphia. Uh, But when he came to Philadelphia, that, that left Burgoyne on his own. And Burgoyne just ran into a bustle. I mean, he he came out of Canada with about 8,500 men, but uh, with militia and Continentals who rally against him, he's he's badly outnumbered, almost by two to one.
0: And who's and, leading uh, those American troops?
1: Uh, Horatio Gates. Originally, Philip Schuyler was the commander of the northern department. And Congress had been disappointed with Schuyler almost from the beginning, and they dumped Schuyler in the summer of 1777 and appoint Horatio Gates. And Gates had been a former professional officer in the British Army, became something of a a political radical, disenchanted with, with England, but he was also a commoner, and you had to buy your your promotions in the British Army, and he, he rose as far as as the rank of major, but he didn't have the wealth to go beyond that. And so, in despair and disillusionment, he resigned from the British Army in the mid-1760s, and then moved to Virginia in 1770, uh, and served with, with the American Army. And so uh, Gates led the American army and essentially what he did at at uh, just below Saratoga is uh, he uses the terrain effectively and he blocks Cornwallis and Cornwallis is faced with a Hobson's choice. He either has to try to fight his way through uh, the American Army, which was the superior army, or try to retreat, which would probably have been disastrous all the way back to to Ticonderoga through the wilderness, and uh, he he chose to try to fight his way through. And there were two battles, Freeman's Farm and and Bemis Heights, and he he was unable to fight his way through, slug his way through in either one of those, and uh, then he was just surrounded by the Americans at Saratoga, and he capitulated an entire army doesn't Benedict Arnold have a role in this battle? Yeah, absolutely. yeah. and in, in both of the um, engagements that we we think of as Saratoga, mm-hmm. uh, Arnold fights in in both of those. Uh, actually, uh, he he had had problems with um, with with General Gates after the first battle. and gates in in essence, relieved him of his command, but Arnold went into into battle anyway in the second uh, engagement and was wounded badly. In that uh, in that second uh, in, engagement, but fought spectacularly in that uh, that engagement.
0: And he's much commended by Washington, isn't he? Uh,
1: he was Washington. I, I think, as I said earlier, Washington was a, was a shrewd judge of uh, of men, and I think I always felt that Washington saw in Arnold some of his own qualities. I, I think uh, a, at least in, uh, Arnold was a fighter and he was daring and and that's what Washington wanted in his generals and that that's pretty much what Washington was in in many uh, cases. So he met Arnold early on uh, during the war, in 75 in fact, and put him in in command of one portion of the army that invaded uh, Canada, and he tried to protect Arnold throughout. That Arnold uh, just was hated by a great many men, and a great many men in Congress, and um, uh, was shafted on numerous occasions by. Why Congress. was he hated? Uh, I think he was aggressive, and 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 a lot of it was just the politics that mm-hmm. went on. I, I don't think anybody has done a very good job yet looking at the politics of the army and the politics of of congress and um arnold got caught up in 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 that and um uh got passed over for promotion on a couple and does that sort of, of
0: thing kids. explained his ultimate I, I
1: think it did yeah 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 i i think had had he been um uh promoted or treated better by congress i don't think he would have ever turned coat mm-hmm.
0: of course when he does turn coat and and he does it by giving away the secrets to uh, the fortifications at West Point. Isn't that the basic right. idea? Right, To the famous Major Andre. Uh, to Major Andre. By the way, did you notice, as you entered our building tonight, the statue of, um, uh, what's his name, of Nathan Hale?
1: Yes. Uh uh-huh. yeah. Who
0: uh, is taken as a spy. Uh-huh. Uh, at what point? It's, it's, it has some relation to that. Time, does well, it well? That was
1: a little bit earlier, little bit I early. think, in, in New York, yeah. Because well, Na- the the Andre Andre w- was captured in 1780. What, what brought Nathan Hale to mind in
0: the statue out in front of the Tribune Tower is that Andre also is. Uh, uh, apprehended and is tried as a spy right. and very quickly executed.
1: Right. Uh, was actually, Hill. Washington uh, tried to exchange Andre for for Arnold. Washington yeah. badly wanted to get his hands on Arnold, and Clinton wouldn't wouldn't agree to that deal. And then Washington sent a Virginia soldier who volunteered for it down to uh, act as a defector from the American army to to infiltrate and get uh, and try to get into uh, Arnold's uh outfit a double agent uh, right and and to kidnap Arnold or if mm-hmm. if need be to kill Arnold and he actually did uh, manage to get in the in, in the partisan uh unit uh provincial unit rather that Arnold raised and went to Virginia with uh, with Arnold which put him which put this young man in a and a great deal of difficulty, because had he been captured by the Americans who didn't know what he was up to, he would have probably been executed as a defector from the Continental Army. Sounds like a plot by John Le Carre. (laughs) Right, it does. There was a fair amount of espionage,
0: and all the kinds of tricks of modern war were already in full use during the Revolution.
1: Sure, sure. And, uh, in fact, at the very beginning of the war, the head of the uh, medical department, uh, was actually a, a British spy, and he was he was smoked out. It was uh, Dr. Church from Massachusetts, and um, he was simply exiled, um, but his ship sunk when he was sailing for England, and he perished. After the victory at Saratoga, what is the correlation of forces at that point? Well, w- once Saratoga occurs, that that's the point when France decides to uh, to enter Franklin the war. Franklin was over
0: there telling them, right. you are winning. You should join us."
1: Right, Franklin. Franklin was actually there was a a three three man uh, team of commissioners, mm-hmm. as Congress called them, and they had they had been sent over in seventy six, and they had been trying for almost two full years to get France into the war and uh it, but and saratoga is really the the turning point the uh, the french i think feel at at that point that if, if the british hadn't been able to crush the rebellion in 2 years without france there then they certainly couldn't crush it when when the french came in and the french could could uh, gain revenge for the losses in the French and Indian War and mm-hmm. and uh, weaken their their old traditional enemy that, as you as you alluded to earlier. Of
0: course, uh, Lafayette, <clears throat> a very young French nobleman, was already at Washington's side, but he didn't lead the French forces. It was uh, a major uh, a significant. French military for your general Rochambeau. Rochambeau, right.
1: right. right. Yeah, brings Lafay- over. La- well, Lafayette came over with a good many other uh, French volunteers in 1777. Sure. And um, uh, many of those were were Lafayette wasn't, but there were several engineers. We we had no trained military mm-hmm. engineers whatsoever. Uh, so they provided valuable service for Russian But Rochambeau comes over with a, an army of, what, seven, but, or 8,000 men? About 6,000 6, men. And But they don't... The, the, I, I think what happens uh, is the, the French send a fleet over first in 1778, mm-hmm. which just narrowly missed uh, capturing a British army. The British had just succeeded in escaping New Jersey uh, back to New York when that that French fleet... Arrived within a week or so of their departure,
0: but that same French fleet will play the ultimate. Will play a very valuable role in the ultimate battle.
1: Well, right, but the but the French fleet that came over in seventy eight just stayed for a few weeks, yeah, and it then went it back. went to the Caribbean, and it pretty much stays in the Caribbean from from the winter of seventy eight uh, until seventeen eighty one, and by seventeen eighty. The French see that the war can't be won by the Americans by themselves, and so they send over this six thousand man army under Rochambeau and lands in Rhode Island in, in uh, June of of 1780.
0: Do you agree with that judgment that uh, that the French formed in 17? A.D., that the war could not be won by the Americans alone?
1: Absolutely. I, I think the, the American cause was in desperate straits by, by 1780. In fact, at the, at the very beginning of 1781, on, on January 2nd, 1781, James Lovell, who was a congressman from uh, Massachusetts, wrote to John Adams, who was his friend, and he began his letter by saying, uh, we are bankrupt with a mutinous army. So, uh, I mean the, the the country really had had had, had careened toward bankruptcy around seventeen seventy nine. and uh, the the war effort suffered from that point on, and morale was was sinking. If you read the letters of some of the French officers who were writing home by seventeen eighty, uh, they're saying there's there's more interest uh, in the American Revolution and some of the clubs in Paris than there is in the United States. Morale was really waning at that point.
0: What do we have by way of, uh, uh, of uh, original material, letters and commentaries and so on, of that period? What do we have from the common soldiers that reflects that degree of disgruntlement, that degree of alienation from the cause itself?
1: Well, the... The, we don't really have too much from the common soldiers. Uh, many of them were were illiterate, or their letters just weren't uh, preserved. A few kept journals uh, here and there, and uh, you can you can I think from the journals you can glean more of the hardships that they faced, the, the the lack of food, the lack of clothing, the lack of shelter, whatever. Most of the records that have survived by the contemporaries are are either uh, c- civilian officials in Congress or the officers. We have Washington's papers, Lafayette's papers, Green's papers, and, and whatever. So we have an abundance of, of material from the officers.
0: But the, the morale of the army was very, very low. And there were many defections or men reaching the end of their enlistment period and just
1: well, and lots of desertions. And desertions. there's one study that indicates that the desertion rate was around twenty five percent or so a terrific. so
0: percentage. what uh, what re-energized the army?
1: Well, I think they, they 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 partly it was it was energized by Saratoga and France coming into the mm-hmm. war. And there was a feeling immediately after Saratoga, there was a feeling that, The war would not last very much longer. Uh With France in the war, it would all be wrapped up within a year or so. But it does last longer, and it, it swings down to the south.
0: Yes, a very important point you make in this very important new book, Almost a Miracle, is that the war in the South has been somewhat neglected by other historians, and that finally the war was really won down there in what was very much a kind of a guerrilla operation running for two years or so.
1: That's right. The British switch in 1778 to to what's called the Southern Strategy, and their idea is uh, to try to to reconquer the four Southern colonies, Georgia, South Carolina, Mm -hmm. North Carolina, and Virginia. I mean, those were, after all... Uh, their most important colonies from an economic standpoint, their cash colonies, because that's where tobacco and rice were produced uh, at at that time period. But also, if they could conquer those colonies, they would come out of the war with a strong, uh, viable American empire that would swing from Canada it would include everything west of the Appalachians it would include those four southern colonies as well as Florida which Britain had had acquired in the uh, French and Indian War and their islands in the Caribbean so they would have a, not only a large empire, but the United States would only consist of nine or ten states, and it, and it would be completely encircled by Great Britain. So the British
0: begin down there by taking, uh, with a sea assault or a landing on the coast, taking I think both Charlotte and Savannah, is that right?
1: Right. They, they start with Savannah. They they yeah. Just after Christmas in 1778, they land a force in Georgia and they take Savannah. And, in fact, not only take Savannah, but they re- reinstall the royal governor of Virginia mm-hmm. and uh, a loyalist legislature that repeals all of the uh, 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 revolutionary legislation that had been passed since 1776. Then in 1780, they invade South Carolina and they take Charleston. In May, I said Charles, I meant Charleston. I mean, Charleston. Yeah, take Charleston yeah. in in May of 1780, and uh, the Americans lose as many troops uh, essentially at Charleston as Burgoyne had lost at Saratoga. It's our Saratoga, uh, in fact. Uh, and so we've lost a Continental Army at Savannah. 18 months later, we lose another Continental Army at Charleston. And uh, three months after Charleston, we lose a third Continental Army in the Battle of Camden in South Carolina. So it's, it's beginning to look like not only Georgia, but South Carolina as well. And what shapes so, up by
0: way of American response down there in the South?
1: Well, in, 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 once Charleston is taken, the British established about a dozen outposts in the backcountry of South Carolina. And starting in the in the summer of 1780, a partisan war or guerrilla war develops in the backcountry. The, these the people in the backcountry are for the most part Scotch Irish. They don't like the British. Their ancestors have, or, or themselves have, have been driven out uh, uh, of Europe by the by the British. Many of them are Presbyterians. They don't like the Anglican Church, which is a state church in England. They especially don't like having to pay taxes to it. They they look uh, on the British as invaders. And um, I, I think they're sort of classic cases of what Thomas Paine talked about in Common Sense. It, in Common Sense, Paine spoke of the revolution as being what he called the birthday of a new world. And you think about that. It's a very radical statement. Birthday of a new world Hmm. means really drastic change. Who leads them down there? Who who's the leading general in the in the South? Yeah. Well, initially, uh, well, there's there's three generals. An American general named Robert Howe is defeated at Savannah. Then Benjamin Lincoln is defeated at Charleston, yeah. and then Horatio Gates, Gates is defeated over. at at Camden, and after Gates, General Nathaniel green is sent in, and it was a case where Congress turned to Washington and ask Washington to name the commanding general. And Washington had always refused to do that. He thought it was a political uh, minefield to get into, but he he was so desperate, he named Gates. And
0: how Gates rallied the troops and uh, fought a war that might almost have been described by Muhammad Ali. They float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. That's what they were doing, and we'll return to uh, that Guerrilla War Waged in the South, right after uh, some quick commercials, an update on the news, and then back to John Furling, author of Almost a Miracle. And we return to John Furling. We'll be on to your calls in about 12 minutes or thereabouts. Uh, that is right after we pause at 10.15 for a quick round of commercials. And so, if you're very eager to pose a question and want to get in uh, into the conversation and don't mind waiting just a bit, you could give us a ring right now and get in line. The number, of course, 591-7200. 591-7200. 312, the area code, if you're calling long distance. And if you're at a great long distance and listening to us over the Internet particularly and want to join uh, in the conversation via email, the email address is extension 720 at Tribune.com, extension 720, one word, at Tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com, and for phones, again, 591-7200. So, the Southern War really depletes and exhausts the British, doesn't it?
1: It really does. I, uh, right after the, uh, uh, the British took Charleston, um, they essentially issued a mission accomplished statement. The British headquarters said resistance is is, is over. The war is won. The, We're just they, in the cleanup phase. That's it, yeah. yeah. Just, just a little bit of a few militiamen around. Mm-hmm. But by the end of that summer, Cornwallis was saying the revolution, the rebellion is, is widespread because um, a guerrilla warfare Began to develop that that summer in the south, and there were there were partisan units that just issued out of swamps and forest and and ambushed British. Now, how much of
0: that is under direction or control by Washington? He's not there.
1: No, he's not there. He never he never comes to the the south. So he re, he really has no um, no not only no control over it, but I think Washington really underestimated uh... the importance of the war in the south for for quite a while when after savannah fell for example at the end of seventeen seventy eight he told congress it it was of of little consequence uh... and washington i think pretty pretty jealously guarded his troops outside of new york uh... and the troops that were sent down from the north were largely uh... sent by congress uh, in in fact. So it's, it's all something that's pretty much done by Southerners themselves, um, at least until Green uh, comes down. And, mm-hmm. and Green isn't appointed to command the, the Southern Continental Army. and doesn't arrive at any rate until the last two or three days of 1780. So his, his role was played in 1781, which is really the critical year.
0: And beyond that, we're approaching the great uh, military denouement of the war, namely uh, uh, Yorktown itself. Uh,
1: right. Yeah, and I, I think when when 1781 began, um, the, the country was in such sad shape um, that almost everybody realized that victory had to be attained in 1781, or it wasn't going to 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 be attained. Washington said that. John Adams, in effect, said that Adams thought that, that the French wa- wanted to leave the war. The French had gotten nothing out of their two or three years in the war. And uh, Adams thought that they were looking for an honorable way to, to get out of the war. And the, the neutral nations in Europe were urging uh, a peace conference, I mean, their their economies were being injured by the war. So they wanted
0: uh were the uh, British by that time interested in some sort of compromise supplement?
1: No. And and in fact that was one of the mistakes that the British probably made Mm -hmm. in the long run because there were proposals by neutral powers for a peace conference in the spring of seventeen eighty one and the British said no. Uh, because things were going so well in the South. And in fact, when they when they embarked on their southern strategy, as I mentioned earlier, it's essentially just to crush the rebellion and force southern colonies. But things were going so badly with the American economy and American morale that some in London were, were now beginning to think it might be possible to to crush the rebellion in some of the northern states, New, probably not in New England, but but maybe in New Jersey, maybe in in Pennsylvania. During
0: those two years of the the southern uh, portion of the war, were the fatalities and. Uh and general injuries to the British very very high well
1: the, they they suffered a, a high attrition rate in in uh, in 1781 when Cornwallis is, mm-hmm. is chasing green you you alluded to it earlier yeah. is using the Muhammad Ali quote. quote mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a space of about a hundred days uh, Cornwallis loses about 40 percent of his army I mean that that's Killed, wounded, illness, and and whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were out in the elements. It was raining all the time. It was cold. Uh, men got got sick. So he loses about 40% of, of his many. Mini- and and there, there are several battles. battle Cowpens, a battle, of Cowpins, a battle of Guilford Courthouse, causes attrition uh, for his army. And well. American
0: casualties are comparatively light, one
1: gathers. Uh, fairly light, yeah. Fairly yeah. light.
0: So it was that sort of war,
1: right? Yeah. a
0: guerrilla war successfully waged right. by the Americans.
1: Right. And the, the, there are those two-pitched battles at Calpins and, mm-hmm. and Guilford Courthouse, and the Americans lose uh, pretty heavily at, at Guilford Courthouse, though not they didn't lose as many men as Cornwallis lost. It was, in fact, Cornwallis technically yeah. won the battle.
0: So Cornwallis with his depleted <clears throat> army, how does this lead to Saratoga? well to yorktown to, it oh, to le- yorktown.
1: Yeah, le- leads to yorktown so I much right over. in the sense that Corn- cornwallis had been ordered by general clinton who's the command yeah. overall commander of the british army uh, not to to leave the carolinas until he has pacified them and cornwallis really violates that order he he takes his army into virginia there's another British army of about 2500 men already mm-hmm. in virginia and cornwallis reaches the conclusion that he can't suppress the rebellion in the carolinas unless he can shut down the supply routes of in virginia the supplies were coming in from the northern states through virginia down to the guerrilla fighters in the south and he thinks the only way he can win it is, is to go there. And, in a sense, maybe the British uh, should have started by, instead of invading Georgia as the southernmost colony, maybe they should have invaded Virginia and come south, rather than working from the south toward the north. Now, what happens at Yorktown? Well, Cornwallis he um, takes his army over to the Virginia Peninsula near the, near the Chesapeake. He's, he's directed to do that, because the British think that what Washington and Rochambeau are going to do is, is attack New York, and Cornwallis then, by being at the Chesapeake, could be retrieved by the British and brought back to New York. So he's ordered to, to come to the Peninsula. And essentially, what happens is it's Rochambeau that really envisages the opportunity to to score a victory. Washington wants to attack New York. Rochambeau sees the opportunity to trap a British army in Virginia, and unbeknownst to Washington, uh, Rochambeau writes the commander of the of the British of the French Navy and the Caribbean, Admiral de Grasse. And asked de Grasse to come not to New York, but to the Chesapeake.
0: And they do that, and in essence, they bottle up the they, harbor, and the British can't escape by by sea.
1: That's right. And in fact, it what's called the Battle of Virginia Capes is a naval yeah. encounter between uh, the French Navy and the British Navy that uh, William Wilcox, who was Clinton's biographer, a great biographer from the University of Michigan, argued was the, the greatest naval encounter uh, of the 18th century. And I think it was. W- with that, Cornwallis's escape by sea is, uh, is, is out of the question. And so,
0: as a prudent general, he realizes, in essence, the jig is up, and he has to surrender.
1: Yeah, well, the, the Rochambeau and Washington bring their armies down, and they block yeah. his exit yeah. by land, launch a siege, and um, he's he's doomed. He's, he's outnumbered heavily, almost two to one. How long does the siege last? Uh, not that long, really, about three weeks. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then he gives in. <laughs> and then he gives in. And he
0: sends his second-in-command. To uh, give his sword to Washington, and right. Washington he, refuses to accept it.
1: Right, Cornwallis pleaded illness, and he didn't no. didn't attend the surrender ceremony. And he asked uh, his general Charles O'Hara, who was a, a long long-term veteran British officer, and his second in command, to uh, to represent him uh, at the at the surrender ceremony. And Washington refused to accept uh, the, the surrender from Cornwallis's. Uh, Underlings. So O'Hara, in effect, uh, in, instead surrendered to Benjamin Lincoln, who was the second yeah. American in command.
0: There's a great uh, bit of history, probably incorrect, but as, some years later it was asserted by I, I don't know by who by which particular historian uh, that the British band at the time of the surrender played uh, a tune uh, titled "The World Turned Upside Down." which is which is wonderful because the world will turn upside down for them here it is And indeed, that's a very appropriate tune. The world was turned upside down for the British. That great uh, major power of Europe uh, was defeated by essentially um, unsophisticated and, uh, and untrained military led by a few people uh, who had some military skill. But basically, the common folk depe- defeated an imperial power. With, so the, it,
1: with the help of the French.
0: With the help <laughs> of the French, to be sure. The only thing wrong with the... Uh, this perfect ending is apparently that isn't what the band played at all.
1: That's right. There's there's no evidence that they <laughs> did play. It's a good story, but yeah. no evidence. And, and there's a story uh, also that uh, was, was told by uh, Washington's step-grandson, George mm-hmm. Washington Park Custis, that uh, uh, that night Washington did give a dinner for the British officers and, and uh, George Washington Park Custis wrote many years later that uh, at the dinner Cornwallis told Washington that, that Washington's victory at, at Trenton and Princeton was the real turning point of the war. Unfortunately it's not a true story because Cornwallis was, was still pleading illness and he didn't attend uh-huh. the, the dinner and he never talked with Washington.
0: He saw it as a great humiliation. <laughs> he wasn't going to yeah, well, That's right. Yeah. We have many mythical things about the war. For example, the famous oration by Patrick Henry, "Give me liberty, or give me death," apparently was only composed by somebody trying to remember what he might have said some 50 years
1: later. That's right. There, there were people who, at least one person, who took notes of the yeah. of the speech, and uh, he, he he said some things along those lines, but he didn't actually say that. It was embellished.
0: We are about to pause. A quick round of commercials, then on to the phones and to the email. Uh, at the moment, all the phone lines are taken. There's no surprise in that. If you're trying to reach us and not getting through, try again after we say good night to a prior caller. And for email, there's infinite uh, capacity there, so if you want to join us, uh, uh, just get your email in quickly at uh, extension720 at tribune.com. Directly onto your contributions after these words. And our guest uh, is John Ferling, that's spelled F E R L I N G, the author of the new book, Almost a Miracle The American Victory in the War of Independence, uh, a superb and utterly readable history from which one can learn truly and at last how the Revolutionary War was fought and how it was won. Uh, of that book, uh, many have said very uh, commending things. Uh, One is by an old friend of ours, Michael Beschloss, who has been here, was here most recently, only I think about three or four months ago, who says, John Furling is a national resource and almost a miracle is a splendid combination of subject with a superb historian writing at the peak of his powers. Furling's brilliant book makes an important contribution to the scholarship of the revolution while telling a gripping story that every American must know. And with that, let us go directly to the phones five nine one seven two double zero the number and you are on the air good evening
2: good evening gentlemen uh, Interesting topic very actually fascinating topic i wonder if um, the author professor could quote on the size of the armies i mean i hear you describe you know forces of you know basically uh... what would be considered regimental sizes in napoleonic and uh... Civil War era as armies, and I compare that with an excellent book called *The Face of Battle* by John Keegan, and he talks about the uh, Waterloo. And he mentioned that the Austrian Ar- that Austria had an army of 200,000 men, uh, Russia had an army of 150,000, Persia had an army of 100,000, and Napoleon had an army of 200,000 facing them. I mean. How many people, how many soldiers were actually involved? You said Persia, you
0: meant you meant Prussia. Prussia. So, I'm
2: sorry, yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm. Sorry. <laughs> wrong <laughs> wrong century right, but uh, Prussia. you know, so you had maybe uh, maybe half a million soldiers facing Napoleon's you know, uh, two hundred thousand uh, versus you you're talking about two thousand versus three thousand. i mean the, the 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 scale of magnitude seems to be you know unbelievably small. How many soldiers were actually involved? you know, under arms in the American Revolution.
1: Okay. Well, altogether about 100,000 men served in the Continental Army. That's over a period of uh, uh, eight and a half years. And then in addition to that, we're not really sure how many Americans served in the militia, but uh, perhaps as many as 200,000. During that uh, that eight and a half year period, I, I think the the size of the Continental Army varies from year to year. Uh, at, at its peak, about forty thousand men served in one year in the in the Continental Army, and of course that. They were divided between Washington's army and uh, men who were in the northern department. For the most part, um, in most of the, the battles that were fought, uh, the, the really the largest battles, um, you had armies of somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, fifteen to 20,000 facing one another. So it was certainly smaller. You're right.
2: So it's been a relatively handful of people, you know, men, fought, decided the fate of this country.
1: Uh, that that's true. That's
0: right, uh, sir. Thank you for the call. You know, a related um, question comes to mind, uh, and it relates also. We can also do a parallel in the present day. There are some critics of our current Iraq war, who arguing not from the left that we never should have gone there, but arguing rather that we didn't send enough men at the very beginning. Uh, Fred Kagan. Uh, argued that we should be sending a force twice as large as the force that we did in fact commit. Should send about three hundred thousand. If the British had sent twice as many as they did, would they have won? Uh,
1: it's uh, they they should have in '76. I think. I mean, they had everything going for them. Uh, and actually, it was something that was debated in the North Ministry in mm-hmm. uh, as as uh, w- once the war broke out. Um, and and I think they, the 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 feeling in the North Ministry was that uh, it wouldn't be that that challenging. That the the idea of citizen soldiers who were untrained standing up against British regulars was just uh, absolutely unthinkable. Uh, there was one British general who said that he he could take uh, a few hundred men and march from one end to the of the continent uh, to the other uh, and destroy the the Americans. And in fact, he he said he could geld all of the Americans while he was at it. Uh, so, why, were,
0: why were they so prone to underestimating well, the I, resilience and, and for that matter, the, the brilliance of the Americans?
1: Yeah, I, I think it was their experience with the Americans in the French and Indian War. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, under William Pitt, the British had sent over about 20,000 uh, men, and they asked the Americans to raise about 20,000 men. And of course, the Americans were, were citizen soldiers. Uh, they weren't professionals. And uh, the British professionals uh, uh, had a low opinion Mm -hmm. of them, and that carried over to the beginning of this war.
0: On to the next caller. Good evening. You are on the air. Hello. Yes, sir.
3: That's a great topic. Um, Before I get to my main point, uh, what you just brought up, the size of the British Standing Army wasn't all that great either. I'm not sure what it was in 1776, but at the outset of the Napoleonic Wars, it was only around 70,000 men which compared to the continental or armies, meeting continental Europe, was quite small. But my point was uh, that the contribution of our allies in the World War of the War of the American Revolution, I think was a, a strategic victory over the Royal Navy in that they, they managed to do so much all over the world that they kept the, the squadrons and fleets of the Royal Navy busy in the Mediterranean, in the Pacific, uh, in the Caribbean. So they couldn't concentrate significant enough forces in America to to completely uh, envelop and completely uh, uh, destroy uh, everything that the of the Americans they should have. And I think that's a significant co- contribution. And I'm interested in what the author thought of that.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with you entirely. And in fact, I, I think it's not just the French army, a uh, French navy rather, but uh, once France enters the war. In order to protect uh, their sugar islands down in the Caribbean, the British essentially uh, sent half of the army that they had in North America down to to the Caribbean. So um, at its peak, the British had about forty thousand men in North America. but from seventeen seventy eight on, um, the, the British have an army of um, oh maybe twenty to 25,000 with uh, half of that in the South and half of it in, in New York. Yeah.
0: We're agreed on all of that. We thank you, sir, for the call. Thank you. And we will go to the newsroom for a quick update from Veronica Carter. And directly back to John Furley and your calls to him, 591-7200, the number, and you are next on the air. Good evening.
3: Uh, good evening, gentlemen. Um, my question is um, for for the uh, for the guest tonight. Is um, I, I recently viewed the Mel Gibson film uh, The Patriot, which kind of loosely described what the, the author uh, was describing about what took place um, in the South, uh, as far as the guerrilla warfare and everything else. And uh, Mel Gibson played the character named Benjamin Martin. And I know that you guys spoke of uh, Gates and of Nathaniel Green and of Cornwallis and and all of those characters which were also included in that film. But I just wondered if, if this person was an actual uh, uh, real person or was this just Hollywood kind of uh, making up the thing? And how many liberties would you say they took with with the actual events uh, that took place during that
1: film? Well, as
0: I remember that film, they represent the British as extremely nasty. Uh, and the the Brit- commanding British officer, uh, a, a real murderer,
1: right? I I think well the Mel Gibson character. and It's been many years since I've seen the the movie, but the Mel Gibson character uh, w- was a fictitious character, and and okay. in essence, he he was uh, uh, an amalgam of several patriot leaders, Francis Marion and Sumter, and and others. Um, um in some respects i think some of the battle scenes and and certainly the notion of um of uh, ambushing British patrols, attacking British uh, supply lines, and and whatever that that much certainly was true. I my it, my, rec, my recollection has been a good many years is that it was pretty fanciful. In that with,
0: film, the British just uh, killed civilians in a rather wanton way,
1: right? And I I don't think that 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 was the the case. The British certainly did send loyalist units out searching for mm-hmm. the, um, uh, for the guerrillas. And there's no question that there were, there were depredations on, on both sides. And, and there were massacres uh, that, that were carried out on both sides, usually, though, armed men attacking other armed men and not civilians. But, but uh, I, I think probably more civilians became victims in the South than in any other part of the country. You do have victims, uh, you do have civilians who certainly are victims in uh, Indian raids on the frontier, and, and even on the first day of the war at Lexington and Concord, but the South, I think, bears the brunt of that. But even
0: though he said it some seventy years later, General Sherman was right. War is hell, and this war was hell as
1: well. It, it absolutely was, and I think that's that's largely been forgotten. There's the, and, and I think the biggest reason um, th- that we tend to see the Revolutionary War as um, as a less severe war than it really was, is because the camera hadn't been mm-hmm. invented yet. You look at those Matthew Brady photographs from the Civil War, and you see dead bodies yeah. strewn about the battlefield and whatever. But in the Revolutionary War, you see paintings, and the most famous paintings uh, from the Revolutionary War, the the four Trumbull paintings that hang in the rotunda of the capitol for example don't don't depict any battle scenes they they, they depict the surrender at yeah. at yorktown and at uh, saratoga and washington surrendering his commission at the end of the war or the declaration of independence being signed but they don't depict battle scenes and the battle scenes that that are rarely depicted are usually sort of bloodless uh, scenes
0: the um, um- you know the name uh, Banaster Charlton.
1: Absolutely.
0: He is supposedly the British commander in that film, the picture.
1: Right, yeah. And tar- Tarleton... And he was a real figure. He was a real figure. Tarleton was a British officer. He was from Liverpool. He commanded a, a provincial unit that is a loyalist unit. And um, he attacked a a group of uh, Virginia, so a continental line from Virginia, in May of uh, 1780, about 300 of them who were retreating out of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. He caught them, attacked them, overwhelmed them and then massacred about 75% of them after they laid down their their arms. And that really is the beginning of the Civil War in the South. From that point on, the rebels exact revenge time and again against the British.
0: The overall count of fatalities runs, I learned from your book, around 80,000.
1: That's about about right, and I I think if you look at it on a... That's on both sides. That's on both sides, yeah. Which, if you um, in in terms of the population of America and Great Britain at the time, if you do it on a proportional basis, it would be the equivalent of losing about two million mm-hmm. people in the United States today. And also, if you look at it on a proportional basis, uh, about of uh, just of those who served uh, in the Continental Army, about one in four died. Uh, if you look at the regulars in the revolutionary in the uh, Civil War, it's about one in five that dies. So there's actually a greater proportion in the Revolutionary War. and in World War II, it's about one in 40 American servicemen uh, who die. Or if you look at it in terms of the, the percentage of American men of military age that die, about one in 16, died in the Revolutionary War, about 1 in 10 in the Civil War. In World War II, about one American male of military age in 75 died. So pretty tough war. Mm-hmm. Very tough. Indeed. Uh, back to the
0: phones, 591-7200, and you are on the air. Hi there. Uh, in
3: 1996, I had a chance to buy a, a packaging manufacturing plant in Victory Mills, New York, which is where the Battle of Saratoga was fought. And I had no idea about that whatsoever prior to getting this company. And I had a chance to go to Freeman Farm and where the actual battle uh, was fought. And just standing there and looking around, I realized that not only older men, but young boys, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, died for us, never knowing that they were going to win. They fought a battle, they died, and they obviously never knew that they would win this war. And it struck me so deeply. It's just a story that I just feel we must share with so many Americans. It truly is the most uh, amazing story I've ever been involved with. I just wanted to share that with you.
1: Well, thank you. As a matter of fact, I was on the uh, Saratoga battlefield last week, and uh, I, I had the same feeling that, that uh you have you you look at the terrain, you look at at what uh, those guys were were up against. I, I think the the one thing that that I I might disagree with you on is I I think they 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 were fighting thinking that they could win the war. They wanted to stop uh, Burgoyne they were trying to protect their families. Um, I, I'm not sure that until the very end that they actually realized that they they could capture that army. I think they were trying to just simply stop the invasion from coming any further and reaching um, Albany. But it certainly is a pivotal battle in the war. Thank
0: sir, you Thank you. We thank you, sir, for the call. There are now one or two lines available at last. If you've been trying to reach us, do make another try, 5917200. Um, I haven't really gone to the individuals, to the leaders, or, for that matter, to the common soldiers. But apart from Washington, who obviously always is figural and central in any commentary about the war, who stands out in your own mind and why?
1: Well, uh, I'm probably one of the few that really liked General Charles Lee. He was a British Mm -hmm. officer. He liked Gates, uh, left the British Army and came to America in the 1770s and bought a farm in Virginia. And when the war uh broke out he asked Washington to help him become a, a general in the army and he was appointed a major general. And Washington had a, a great deal of admiration for for Lee. He said he thought Lee had the best mind in the army, was the best engineer uh in the in the army. But Lee had a, a flawed personality, and he really self-destructed at the after the Battle of Monmouth in in June of, of 1778. He was very critical of Washington. He said he he thought Washington um, uh, had had capability of of commanding nothing more than a sergeant's guard, as he put it. And I think Washington got wind of some of those uh, uh, comments that Lee. Lee was making and uh, to cross swords and Washington wasn't someone he wanted to cross swords uh, with and Lee really had, from that point on self-destructed
0: how does one uh, how do you view the common soldier on our side in the Continental Army or for that matter in the militia uh, there were many defections you say lots of people uh, essentially sided with the loyalists what energized and maintained the morale uh, during the particularly hard times of the American soldiers.
1: sure. well, the the composition of the army really changes as the war goes along. in the in the first two years of the war, um, men enlisted for just one year. Mm-hmm. And so the composition of the army in, in 1775 and 1776 was a pretty good cross-section of the free population in America. Mo- most freemen were farmers or artisans, and most of the soldiers were freemen or artisans. But Washington uh, wrote to Congress, and and I think he, he was uh, absolutely correct in doing so, and he said, we can't win the war with with uh, one-year soldiers. It takes longer than that to make a soldier. You can't recruit a new army every year. And so Congress, late in 76, passed legislation that provided for essentially a standing army. Men were to come in for three years of the duration. And farmers couldn't be away from their farms for, for that length of time. So from that point on, uh, the men who come into the army are basically landless men from the lower economic Mm -hmm. uh, and social strata, uh, and many of them came in, I think, uh, for pecuniary reasons, I mean, they they were promised uh, cash bounties. They were promised uh, land bounties, a hundred acres after the war if America won. But I think too many of them uh, uh, bought into the to the ideology of the revolution. Um, that um, they they felt that if America became independent and autonomous, that there would be greater opportunity, there would be greater social and economic mobility uh, in America. And so I think they were fighting both for for ideological reasons and and their own uh, personal reasons. And I think almost everybody was. I mean, Washington was was madly ambitious. He he wanted to be remembered for all time. Uh, there were many people who many officers who saw serving as a, a way to gain recognition perhaps become a political figure of importance following uh, the war uh, but at the same time I mean you had to be certainly uh, dedicated to the cause to to put your life on the line and and to serve year in and and year out and face what they faced
0: I know that in an earlier book of yours, the one titled A Leap in the Dark, you deal with the politics and with ideology. What really were the sources of the ideology, do you think?
1: Well, uh, most much of it came actually from uh, British literature, from from among British radicals, uh, particularly in the early part of the 18th century, who might have been taken more seriously by the colonists than they were in, in England its, itself. But I think what uh, I think the colonists saw what the British tried to do uh, in the 1760s and 70s uh, with taxation and mm-hmm. stripping away American autonomy and whatever uh, they they saw those actions through the prism of that radical uh, literature.
0: So the slogan "taxation without representation is tyranny" was seriously meant.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, but but I, I think there was more to it than just taxation, mm-hmm. uh, that, that essentially, I think, Americans couldn't rise in the British Empire. An American couldn't serve in Parliament, could never become a general in the British Army, could never become a member of the ministry um there were there were there were economic and social limitations and but uh and if if america became independent uh and controlled their own destiny then it would be a whole new ball game and i i think that was what uh much of the revolution was really about
0: don't you think that one of the lessons the british learned was to get somewhat more inclusive with regard to uh, the outposts of the empire I don't know when the dominion and commonwealth system really emerges and gets stabilized but wasn't that a way to keep canada and to keep uh, for that matter uh, australia and so
1: sure on? and and uh, as a matter of fact after saratoga uh, lord north uh, floated a peace plan he sent peace commissioners to america and offered what usually, what historians usually call the, the North Peace Plan of 1778, mm-hmm. in, in which he really moves towards sort of a commonwealth status. He he's offering uh, great concessions to America if they'll make peace and end the war. At that point, giving
0: them home rule, as
1: it were. Right. Yeah. yeah. But with France about to come into the war, uh, the the Americans no longer had any interest in that. Had he offered that in 1775, mm-hmm. there wouldn't have been a war.
0: Uh, we pause the last round of commercials. Then back for a few more phone calls on five nine one seven two double zero. Back to the phones five nine one seventy two hundred. Good evening. You're on the air.
2: Good
3: evening, Milt. Thanks for another fantastic show. Thank you, sir. And- Mr. Ferling, thanks for the book, and thanks for being a guest on the world's greatest radio program.
1: Well, thank Uh, you.
3: I am exiting the Ronald Reagan Tollway at the city of DeKalb in the county of DeKalb, and these are named for Baron DeKalb, uh, a German or Prussian officer who we read trained American soldiers in the Revolutionary War. Can you tell me, in in your estimation, uh, does the uh, importance and contribution of his training uh, uh, warrant uh, these honors, or is it an attestment uh, to the political power of the German farmers that settled this area? And I'll take my answer off to you.
1: Sure. Thank Ge- you, sir. Yeah, General Cobb was uh, he was a volunteer in the French Army and had served for about a quarter of a century in the, in the French Army. He was an experienced um, uh, soldier, to be sure. He soured on Washington. Uh, He he eventually said that he thought Washington was the weakest general um, under whom he had ever served. And he said something else that was rather interesting. In uh, 1777, uh, General Cobb said, and I'm, I'm quoting from him here, if Washington ever does anything sensational, he will owe it more to his good luck or to his adversary's mistakes than to his own ability. That was somewhat harsh, but he, he was prescient, I think, in the uh, sense that it was Cornwallis's mistake in, in violating Clinton's uh, orders and coming to Virginia that uh, led to the decisive battle. Battle General Cobb, by the way, was killed at the uh, Battle of uh, Camden in August of 1780 in South Carolina that that we talked about earlier.
0: We've just got about a minute left, and in that minute, what, then, is your overall estimation of Washington? Uh, Do you agree that he wasn't that good a field commander, but had other qualities that were essential for us?
1: Right. I think he did have other qualities. He was a good administrator. Um, He he worked extremely well with Congress and with with state officials. He won the loyalty of his officers, and he, he really became the glue around which uh his countrymen could could rally but i think you're right he wasn't a particularly great uh, field commander he he was plagued by indecisiveness i think and not a very good st- strategist in many respects but he
0: also held it all together because uh, somehow he had the charismatic force to do so is that right? he
1: did yeah I, I don't think that shows through in the paintings of washington that we see so it looks rather lifeless mm-hmm. in the, in those paintings but clearly he was a charismatic uh, figure. Too too many people uh, describe him in that way.
0: Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Well,
1: thank you. It's, it's been, been a, my pleasure. It's
0: been an exceptionally interesting program. And the new book by John Furling is exceptionally readable and a very valuable resource. Um, I've often complained about how little young people know these days about history, how little they are given full exposure to American history. Uh, if you've got a teenager or somebody older who needs to get updated on the revolution, uh, this is the gift for Christmas, or even earlier. Almost a Miracle, the American Victory in the War of Independence. Uh, And if you don't know much about the revolution, it's the book for you, of course. And with that, we'll wind down for the evening. With Thanks again to John Furling. Thanks to all for listening.